Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Coming up on this episode of The Box of Oddities, the strange ironic life of a Civil War era grocer in one of the strangest crazes in Victorian England. The Box of Oddities. If it's weird, we talk about it. The world is full of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. You know how we've talked about how Cat brings plastic bags full of cracked corn with her everywhere she goes so she can feed any, any stray ducks or birds that she sees, which has caused a bit of a stir at TSA when they check her, uh, her luggage, but... It's fine. She's taken her game to a whole new level. I got a text from Cat yesterday, and she's at the vet, and she had taken Haggis in for his grooming, and there's a, a big pond in front of the place, and there was an alligator in it. And she sends me a picture of an alligator and then tells me that she just bought a chicken sandwich to feed it. <laughs> First of all, your immediate response was no, no, no. <laughs> Do and not feed the alligators. <laughs> I hadn't even said that I had purchased a chicken sandwich yet. You just started sending no with, <laughs> with periods after. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you text at all, you know that punctuation means you're serious Yo, in a I text. Was very serious. No, period. No. I like the fact that you have two legs. <laughs> It comes in handy often. What if we want to buy bicycles? Like a bicycle built for two. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'll be doing the majority of the work then. Oh, okay. So you're just thinking about our future tandem bicycle needs. Yes, I am. All right. Well, Thank you for understanding. I think what you're doing is stealing joy from me. <laughs> you should not feed wild alligators. He was just a little guy anyway. He was so cute. And he was in that little pond with probably 30 ducklings. And I don't understand how they were cohabitating. If he's got 30 ducklings around, he doesn't need a chicken sandwich. <sighs> I just think you're being a joy squasher <laughs> is all. No, I'm, I just want you to have all of your appendages. They might come in handy. Joy squasher. <laughs> Though once Haggis was done with his grooming, we went straight to the car. You'd have to relive that TikTok that we saw where the guy jumped in the lake to save his dog from the alligator. Oh my gosh, I love that TikTok so much. He didn't even lose his cigar. My question was, who was filming it and how did they remain so calm? (laughs) It's a great question. What's up with that? 
just one of life's little bizarre twists and turns. Like my story. Oh. See what I did? What a segue. Thank you. All right. It's the 1800s, and it's a time when life was all about making a buck and enjoying a simple pleasure or two, a quiet existence. Enter a man named Wilmer McLean. Wilmer was a grocer. He was a neighborhood grocer. <laughs> just, I'm going to pause you. I know you're just starting, but I think it's... <laughs> I love when you have to use the term neighborhood grocer in its actual <laughs> usage. Right. Because you call me a neighborhood grocer all the time. Yeah. But you don't mean at all no. that I am someone who's no. selling dry goods or no, whatever. No, you're just a person near me being gross. Yeah, so you call me a neighborhood grocer, and I think it's so <laughs> cute. Well, Wilmer was, in the truest sense of the words, a neighborhood grocer. Oh, no. With uh, Well, no, he was a grocer in the neighborhood. Oh, I and, thought maybe he was a grocer and also he was gross. Oh, as far well, he might have been. I, I don't know for a fact. Oh, okay. But he had dreams of canned beans and a life untouched by the horrors of war. He wanted to keep his shelves stocked and live a peaceful, grocery-filled existence, and Dreaming of a future filled with fresh produce and canned goods. <laughs> and that was Wilmer's world. He was a prosperous wholesale grocer. Okay. But the universe had other plans for, for Wilmer. You see, he was a pacifist, and he wanted nothing to do with the American Civil War, which was threatening to break out at any moment. Okay. He was like... Yeah, uh, listen, we, we can't we all get along, just shop for groceries peacefully together? But then the universe said to Wilmer, let me introduce you to my little friend, the Battle of Bull Run. Mm. Now, the Battle of Bull Run was the very first battle of the Civil War. And it happened right next to McLean's plantation in Manassas, Virginia. Oh, no. Here's a guy that spends his entire life just trying to eke out a quiet existence. He's a pacifist. He wants nothing to do with this war. And the war starts right in his yard. He hated violence. He was against the war, but it came and found him. Poor Wilmer. People aren't naming their kids Wilmer enough anymore. I agree. So here's what happened. It was a seemingly ordinary day in the life of Grocer Wilmer. The sun was shining, the birds were chirping, McLean's kitchen was abuzz with activity. Perhaps he was preparing breakfast, perhaps he was just enjoying a cup of coffee, contemplating grocery-related strategies. Little did he know that his peaceful moment was about to be rudely interrupted. As he's sitting there at the kitchen table, drinking his coffee or whatever he was doing, suddenly, out of the blue, a thunderous boom shattered the tranquility of McLean's kitchen. The earth shook, dishes rattled, pictures fell from the wall. Before he could even register what was happening, a cannonball crashed through his kitchen window. Oh my gosh. And embedded itself in the wall. I can't even imagine the shock of experiencing something like that. You're face to face with the reality of war in the form of an embedded cannonball in your kitchen wall. I'm sure he wasn't expecting that his kitchen was prime location for cannonball target practice. I think he saw it as a sign, time to get the hell out of Manassas. Mm. Wilmer, my friend, your peaceful, grocery-filled existence is about to take an unexpected turn. And so, with the cannonball still lodged in his kitchen wall and chaos unfolding all about him, he decided 
to embark on a journey that would lead him to a more peaceful, tranquil existence. One that wouldn't hurl large chunks of iron through his kitchen window. Sure. So he decided he'd had enough of the war intruding on his mealtime routine, and he gathered up his family, uh, and he said, we're out of here. And I can't imagine what the conversation would have been like sitting down at dinner. Oh, hi, honey. How was your day? Oh, you know, just a cannonball crashing through the window. No biggie. By the way, we're moving. That would be enough for me. I mean, the weird way that the crown molding meets bothers me. So, uh. Yeah. Last night we were sitting in our living room critiquing the molding job <laughs> in our apartment. Why the hell did they do it that way? Not I mean, that we could even no, do it No, meanwhile, well. I could not cut a 45-degree angle. No, no. no. So McLean, like a grocer on the run, packed up his family and sought refuge in a tranquil village just 120 miles southwest of Manassas. So picture McLean, his family, they've settled into the new home. What so was the name of the village? We'll get to that. I bet Shh, don't, I am familiar don't, with the name of the village. Don't ruin it. Okay. So he settles into his new home, surrounded by the peaceful sounds of chirping birds and the occasional clink of a grocery cart rolling down cobblestone streets. It was as if, finally, he got a break. He got away from the chaos of war. And it stayed that way for a number of years. But then things changed. Here's where General Robert E. Lee enters the picture. Lee was surrounded by forces and running low on supply, so he had to make a tough decision. Left with no other option, he decided it was time for the Confederacy to surrender. Lee's decision to surrender wasn't about convenience or strategic brilliance. It was out of sheer desperation. He was where he was, and he needed to give up. And where did the Union forces choose for the surrender meeting to take place? In the bucolic village of Appomattox Courthouse. Mm -hmm. The town Wilmer had moved his family a few years prior. What could make this decision even more bizarre? Poor Wilmer. The surrender ceremony ended up taking place in the parlor of Wilmer McLean's house. What? <laughs> Why? Just fate. There was no strategy behind it. He just wanted to escape the clutches of war, but found himself unwittingly hosting the grand finale of one of history's bloodiest conflicts. <gasps> what a lovely house. I just looked it up. It is lovely. It's beautiful. We love a brick structure. You know. Oh. <laughs> You know, he's in the kitchen trying to have coffee. Here's a <laughs> knock at the door. Uh, excuse me, we'd like to have a surrender meeting in your parlor. I just want to sell some beanie weenies. Oh, the unexpected turns that life takes us on. Wilmer McLean, the accidental host of the surrender meeting, became a symbol of the unpredictability of history. As we reflect on this, highly extraordinary tale. Let's remember that it is absolutely truthful to say that the American Civil War began in Elmer's kitchen and ended in Elmer's parlor. <laughs> I got my information from all that's interesting, the National Archives and the Library of Congress. Wow, that was fun. Isn't that something? Yeah. Also, when you're talking about how Wilmer was just trying to sell his beans and didn't want to be involved in the war, mm -hmm. and uh, and he's like, hey, can't we all just like sell our beans and, and get along? All I could think of was like, 
hey, I got you this can of beans from Jackie's Packies, Route 34 <laughs> in Danvers. <laughs> Mackie Max cousin. Hey, if you know, you know. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. Picture this. The illustrious Eiffel Tower, that French emblem of architectural prowess, basking in the scorching summer sun. Ah, we. Oui. It's a sight to behold. But little do the tourists know the secret that it hides. As the mercury rises and the heat seeps into the tower's iron veins, something extraordinary happens. The tower stretches. That's right, it grows taller. The iron succumbs to thermal expansion, and the Eiffel Tower proudly adds an extra 17 centimeters to its stature, about six inches. Now don't fret, mes amis, for this growth spurt is nothing to cause alarm. Once things cool off, it shrinks back to its normal, stately height. So how are your new tattoos healing? Um, they're doing fine, thank you. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You, one of them is a dinosaur, which is really cute. I love it. And then you got another one with the area code of our home state, Maine, mm -hmm. on it. Uh, 207. Yep. And then you started thinking, geez, I wonder what the police code for 207 is. What am I unwittingly saying about myself? Yeah, it means kidnapping. Ah, okay. Cool. Okay. Heather sent us an email. I was listening to the new episode, Barefoot in Pilgrimy Times, when Jethro referenced Mothman. I just received my mug from Amazon last night that I've been wanting for ages. It says, Mothman believes in you, with a very cute depiction of the goodest boy. I uh, included a picture of it. It's adorable. I brought my new mug to work and happily sipped my coffee from it while listening. Thanks for all you do. Please never change. Cute, huh? Oh, he's pretty precious. Kylie sent us a message on Facebook, and I am ashamed to say 
They sent it in October, Oof. and I just read it. Oh my! Um, here's the thing: is we were doing uh, the cruise. We were get like we were getting right, yeah. ready or traveling or something was happening, and there was a whole chunk of messages that I missed from that that point, and so I just came across them, and so you might be getting some messages from me <laughs> um, unexpectedly after months and months. Anyway, Kylie said, I wrote a while back about how I could relate to Jethro and his fear of the foot-torturing device, oh. a.k.a. the shoe-measuring thingy, hearing about it on your recent F- Halloween episode. Yeah, what is that? Again, what is that called? The Brannock device. That's yeah, the thing at a shoe store. You put your foot on it, and it measures how wide and how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was terrified of that as a child. Yeah, they, they carried me kicking and screaming out of the shoe department at Pennies. <laughs> Pennies's. Pennies's, as we said in. Arusta County, Maine. Kylie said, I was a child and my mom took me to look for shoes as part of my back to school shopping. I accidentally stepped backwards onto one of those devices. The slidey part on this one was broken and the sharp bit cut straight into my heel. I guess that explains my fear of the Brannock device. (laughs) Don't put your foot in those things. It's a trap. It is. (laughs) It's like a medieval torture device. Thank you, Kylie. It's a combination foot measurer and coleslaw maker but instead of cabbage it's your feet soul slaw (laughs) mr mac sent us an email ahoy ahoy fantastic freaks real quick note cat may be afraid of mothman but i gotta say if she ever looked at the mothman statue or its fantastically sculpted ass she might change her mind (laughs) the uh, title on the email is mothman's thick ass and uh he included a photo or a link now, this is the tall one with his arms cut. Yeah, all right. Uh, oh, wow, you're not lying. No, he's... That's thick with two Cs. <laughs> Mothman apparently uh, does his squat. I was just thinking about how we use T-H-I-C-C, thick, mm-hmm. when we're talking about like a, like a sturdy booty. And it, it's funny because two Cs is kind of the shape of a of a thick booty. Hmm, interesting. I just I made a booty with my hands just now. You can't see that. Oh, jeez. But let me just say it was uh, very descriptive and well done. <laughs> Thank you. It was like a shadow puppet of Mothman's ass, but no light <laughs> or shadow. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. 
As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Box of Oddities. I said box. All right. So we've talked about this before. Social status Hmm. was so highly valued in Victorian England. And many people would marry into prestigious families to gain titles. Uh, This focus on wealth and status was a defining characteristic of Victorian society. And it played a significant role in shaping culture and values of the time. Part of this was displaying wealth. Uh, It was so important to the elites of Victorian England. Uh, They went to great lengths to show off their wealth throughout their homes, through their clothing and their possessions. They would spend large amounts of money on luxurious goods and fine art and furniture and jewelry, and then host elaborate parties to showcase their opulence. They would also showcase their pineapples. That's the next sentence that I was going to Shut say. Shut up, get out of my head. No. Or I'll get out of yours. Talked There's much about... more room in my head. <laughs> We've talked about pineapples before and how they were rented during this time. Isn't that crazy? Pineapples were such a status symbol in Victorian England. They were so rare and so exciting. That people would buy them and rent them out. <laughs> and they'd, they would host them as centerpieces at mm. the parties. Uh, often rotting pineapples <laughs> would be on display. That's how you could tell what strata of society right. you were in, is how, how fresh the pineapple is. <laughs> well, in the 1770s, Sir Joseph Banks brought dendrobium orchids back from his historic voyage with Captain Cook. The introduction of this unique specimen initiated a new interest in the Western world. Only the wealthy could afford orchids, so of course the wealthy had to have them. Mm -hmm. Orchids, like so many things of that time, became kind of a snowball effect. Like the more wealthy people that had them, the more important it was that you had one too to show off that you were just as wealthy as whatever her face was down the road. European companies or individuals with enough money would finance collecting expeditions for orchids. They would send out plant hunters to the Far East in search of these rarities. Now, just 1% of orchid species are found in Europe. The majority of orchid species can be found in Southern Central America, Northwest South America, and countries that lie along the Andes Mountains. Now, this was a highly competitive and lucrative pursuit driven by the demand for exotic and rare orchids in Europe. These orchid hunting expeditions were dangerous. Many expeditions were financed by wealthy collectors and orchid enthusiasts, and so maybe it was possible they already had like a really bland, common kind of orchid, but they wanted this super special kind Mm. of orchid. Isn't it weird that we can buy them in the grocery store now? Or a Lowe's. People were willing to pay huge sums of money for new and new, new and unique species. I thought you were going to say new or used, <laughs> like the pineapple. Yeah, 
I guess if an orchid took a similar path as the pineapple, uh, like the not so wealthy would just have the plant part of the orchid, <laughs> like mm-hmm. no flower, mm-hmm. just like, look at those orchid leaves. <laughs> so nice, right? Uh, you don't have any. Orchid hunters would travel to remote and often dangerous locations, jungles of South America and Southeast Asia, in search of these prized plants. They had to navigate through thick forests, cross rivers, climb mountains, all while carrying heavy equipment and supplies. They also had to contend with dangerous wildlife that they were not familiar with, snakes, jaguars, crocodiles. And they didn't have a 7-Eleven chicken sandwich to help them (laughs) maneuver those dangers. They often had to camp in the wilderness for extended periods, enduring harsh conditions and limited food supplies. In addition, other orchid hunters were willing to literally murder people to make sure that they were getting the best orchids because there was a payout at the end. Wow. In addition to all these physical dangers, orchid hunters also faced significant legal and ethical challenges. Many of these areas that they're going to are not very well explored. They're owned by indigenous populations. Those populations might be hostile to outsiders. The hunters frequently clashed with local communities, leading to violence and bloodshed. Also, as I mentioned, these were new and unexplored territories for Europeans. They were exposed to tropical diseases, malaria, yellow fever, dysentery. Mm. They could be deadly. And so many of these orchid hunters never returned to Europe because they shit themselves to death in the jungle. Thanks, dysentery. That's the ultimate sacrifice. Right. New exotic orchids were most often sold at auction in London. They would fetch extravagant prices. Now, even though the wealthy and often royalty were becoming more and more obsessed with these flowers, they really didn't know how to take care of them. They would spend a fortune on orchids that died in unsuitable conditions, generally with waterlogged roots in stifling hot greenhouses. There was this misguided belief, and I so often is the case with uh, European ideas about other places, that it was dark and steamy mm. and maybe a little creepy. And so they would recreate this environment by building these stove houses where they would build custom spaces for these orchids, sometimes additions to their homes or standalone buildings Mm. that would have a stove inside that they kept burning constantly. They would keep it dark inside there. They would fill it with these orchids. I wonder what was going through the orchids' minds. (laughs) I've never been on a boat before, and now this? In actuality, orchids like well-circulated fresh air, but because it was foreign, it was dark and steamy and very (laughs) hot. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, Victorian England. The fascination for collecting the flowers erupted into a hysteria. The craze was dubbed orchid delirium, (laughs) and it produced prices in the thousands of dollars. So... Luckily, there came a great advance in orchid care called a Wardian case. It was a decorative sealed glass and frame containers that kept these plants alive in artificial tropical environments. And it allowed for a greater likelihood that orchids would, first of all, withstand the long journey home Mm. to Victorian England. 
and then didn't require a stove house that would just cook the plants. So it really, it provided the plants a much better chance of surviving just this whole ordeal. Now, this improved method of transportation, plus uh, the recognition that, oh, this seems to work better than this this giant stove we've built for the orchids, <laughs> um, the greenhouses, the conservatories, these entire glass houses specializing in orchid growing, it became kind of a rich man's pastime. Who could build the best place for orchids and who could then acquire the most orchids mm. and keep them alive the longest was really a sign of your hootsie tootsiness. Hootsie tootsiness. Please work that into your everyday conversation more often. <laughs> Politician Joseph Chamberlain had 13 orchid houses on his property in Birmingham. Whoa. Wow. These are buildings constructed specifically for housing orchids. I would love to know the total number of orchids this guy had and what the going price was at the time. He must have had a fortune invested in this. Absolutely. As I said, it was a craze. Even Charles Darwin was intrigued by the flowers, and he researched the ways in which the plants were adapted over time, co-evolving between different orchid species and their insect pollinators. In January 1862, he wrote a letter to botanist Joseph Hooker, thanking him for sending him a specimen of a specific type of orchid. He was intrigued by the unusual length of the flower's spur, and Darwin predicted that it could only be pollinated by a moth. Hmm. And he suspected that this particular moth co-evolved alongside the flower due to its equally long pollen-gathering tongue guy, which I can't remember the name for. It took 41 years, but it eventually was proven to be true that these two species, this moth and this flower, kind of evolved together to be partner species. Symbiotic relationship. Exactly. Now, with the increased ability to transport and house the orchids without murdering them, they were easier to keep, therefore they weren't so rare, they weren't so exotic, it wasn't such a big deal to have them anymore, which meant they kind of fell out of favor because people <laughs> are fickle a-holes. Yeah. Once something becomes popular, it's no longer desirable by the trendsetters. Well, if a poor person could have one, then <clears throat> why would yeah. we want one? Yeah. It's like when a band... People love a band when they're underground and they think that they are one of the few people that really like them. But then when they become mega successful, people go, yeah, they suck now. <laughs> In some cases, like Fleetwood Mac, that's true. Oh. Clearly, their Peter Green days were the best. I don't even know what you're trying to do anymore. We're trying to get people I'm, to like the podcast. I'm, I'm sorry. You I... can't just alienate all Fleetwood Mac lovers. <laughs> My apologies to all Fleetwood Mac lovers. Tusk is an excellent song. They had some excellent songs. Yes, they, they did. I think for me, it's just... Oh, jeez. If I ever hear Dreams one more time, I'm going to do something really not good. Lock yourself in an orchid mm. stove house. And close all the windows. <laughs> Today, international trading of orchids harvested in the wild is now banned by the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, uh, which I didn't know, and that was enacted in 1973. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. One of the places that we really want to go when we get to Ecuador is a place called Mashpee Lodge. Mm. And this is a really unique uh, eco-hotel that was built by a former mayor of Quito. of Quito. And he bought a bunch of land because he was concerned about the clear cutting that was happening at the time, not knowing what he was going to do with it. And then like 10 years later, built this eco lodge. And one of their goals is to bring back the species to that area that had been eradicated because of the, the logging and such. And a big focus of that has been on orchids. Wasn't that the place where a few years ago they discovered a new type of orchid? Yeah. It's in the cloud forest. The lead orchid care man <laughs> who was a former logger who actually logged that area and Mashpee Lodge hired him to be their orchid guy. Right. He uh, spends his days just caring for the orchids in this giant chunk of forest that they i just love it that sounds very appealing to me as a vocational option right i'm just gonna traipse about and care for orchids in the cloud forest and he said that before when he was a logger he didn't really pay attention he just did his job cut things down beep bop boop but now he's like so much more in touch with nature and himself. Mm. And he just spends his days caring for and I'm, anyway, I just really want to go. It's very expensive and we probably can't stay there, but maybe <laughs> I could go and just look at it. It's pricey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> anyway, I love it and I love orchids. And um, one of the first gifts that you ever bought for me was an orchid. That's right. And anyway. And a telescope. That didn't work. And you filled my fridge with tulips once. I did that. Yes, I did. Yeah. And we weren't even like together then. No. You asked me to watch your cats. Yeah. And so the day before you got back, I filled your fridge with tulips. That's pretty nice. I'm a neighborhood grocer. <laughs> yep. A hearty welcome to our latest patrons, the newest members of the Order of Freaks, uh, Trent and Amy. Welcome. There are all kinds of benefits that you can get. You, you know the drill. If you want to listen ad-free or participate in Zoom calls, what have you, go to theboxofoddities.com and the link is right there. We've got an extra special bonus episode coming up next week. I think it's going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have multiple guests. It'll be a really embarrassing time for me. <laughs> anyway, we love you guys. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep... Oh, I just whacked my wedding ring on the microphone stand. Are you okay? I'm fine. Until next time. Wait. We'll see. You did that part. Yeah. Well, see you next time. Keep flying that freak flag. And fly proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.
Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find Historical Blindness on most podcast players and platforms.